Welcome to the RevRec Gals podcast, where two consultants with over 30 years combined experience share stories about the implementation and challenges of revenue recognition accounting. I'm Susan. And I'm Natasha. And And we we are are the the RevRec Gals. Welcome back. In this episode, we begin discussing how we start the SSP or standalone selling price analysis. How does one go about doing an SSP analysis on standalone transactions? The first step is to gather all of the data that you're going to use. And one of the questions I I usually get is, what data are we using? So the data available to us, we have bookings, we have invoicing, and we have revenue. Revenue doesn't work because revenue, you may have a sale today, but that revenue is recognized over three years because it's a three-year support service. What we're trying to look at is what are our current selling practices? Revenue is not a data point to use. The next becomes, can you use bookings or invoicing? Again, because we want to say what is our selling practice, we really want to look at that invoicing information rather than the booking. Because the booking, we could it could be sitting out there. It could end up being a future transaction. We're going to start with the invoice information. Well, it's an interesting question of bookings versus invoices, because I also think that people use those terms differently. So it kind of depends on the company. I've been at companies where their invoices are basically their bookings. And I've also worked at companies where their bookings mean something completely different to them. When I think of bookings, I think of like a committed contract. I'm thinking more of backlog. The transaction's not yet been finalized. So that like in cases where there's auto renewal contracts or there's a termination clause, like maybe it's a three-year contract. So it's a three-year booking, but it's really only a one-year commitment. Yes. Or it could be they're just pending delivery. We haven't delivered it yet. So there's still the possibility of the customer changing the order. Right. So for certain clients that you might have worked for, the booking really isn't final until the delivery has actually happened because of the way they structure their contracts and what their selling practices are. Yes. And then the invoices, I think practically speaking, for a lot of my especially earlier stage companies, invoices is their proxy to bookings. But for other companies, the invoicing has nothing to do with their bookings because maybe they have a regular practice of doing monthly or quarterly invoicing on an annual contract. So if you did it based on invoice, you're only looking at one month of a one-year contract. Oh, you make a good point there. And that also plays into standardizing the data. If you do have these, these monthly invoices, is this really a monthly contract? And is that going to be its own stratification, which we'll talk about later? If you even have annual and you do prorated, those prorated ones, you need to annualize so that they're a comparable data point. So there's a whole lot of data cleanup that goes on before you can even get into this SSP analysis. You're 100% right. And my my head's spinning with Excel formulas as we're talking. (laughs) Because because I've done this a bunch, right? You've done this a bunch. I think both of us have like, a, you know, like a love-hate relationship with SSP. <laughs> Whether you start with bookings or invoices, almost always you have to adjust for one of the things we just said. Whether it's a booking report that has these like not finalized bookings to them that you have to get rid of, 
or it's an invoice report where some of these invoices are quarterly, but it's really a year-long commitment. All of these things need to be adjusted for and sort of normalized so that you're looking at apples to apples throughout your contract population. I don't know about you, but the thing that I always do when I get this data, if they don't already have it, some some companies already have it, a unique contract identifier. So I come up with my own usually, even sometimes, even if they do have their own, I want to come up with my own because I don't necessarily agree with what they define as a contract versus what I define as a contract from a revenue accounting perspective. I do the same because also you may have contracts that need to be combined into their own revenue contract. Your compliance is based on that unique identifier. And as far as, you know, this data cleanup, if you're trying to identify what are your standalone sales, you need to see all of the things in that contract, which could exist on multiple invoices. And so you could have an invoice that is upfront for the services, and then later they have a an invoice for the hardware or the SaaS subscription. And so those could all show up on different invoices, but really be part of one contract. And this is where you really have to talk to the company to understand what their contract practice is to see, okay, should I start with invoices? Cause that's going to be closer. Or should I start with bookings? Because that's going to be closer. Usually there's not a perfect report unless you have a more mature company that has been through this process and has figured out, okay, we need to get our data clean. Other places where I've seen a lot of data cleanup is in items where they'll invoice or order and they'll just put the total value like for professional services, but there's an underlying estimate of hours that go along with it. So then you have to dig in and say, okay, that's great. You estimated this, but what's the number of hours that's the basis so that I can then get an hourly rate I can use for my SSP analysis? Oh my gosh, you bring such a good point up around just quantity in general. So some companies have a very well-defined SKU list and each SKU is very clear and there's a product group and there's a quantity column, you know, there's a quantity and then a price per quantity and then an extended price. But one of the things that always gets me is when you have a SKU for one, a SKU for 10, a SKU for 20. And so you could have a SKU that represents 20 units that they purchase one time and then you, so, you, so it has a quantity of one and it has an extended price, but really that price is for 20, not one. And so, you know, you have to think about, okay, what, what is in this SKU list? And when I say SKU list, I realize I, I didn't explain that. A product list, SKU, I forget what that stands for. Stop keeping unit. There we go. Stop keeping unit. There you go. Good knowledge. <laughs> but a product list, right? What are your product names? Do they have a unique identifier? Is it regularly used or not? So many times I get a data dump and the SKUs are all over the place. You really don't know what's being sold. You kind of have to look at the description. People haven't used it consistently. And so what I end up doing a lot of times in those circumstances where they don't have a very well-defined SKU list is assigning my own, what I call SSP item number or SSP product name. I need to get some normalization of like, okay, what's training? What's professional services? Okay, you have three different types of professional services. There's, you know, these three different levels. Let's make sure they're all properly categorized because they might have used six different SKUs for one resource type, or they might have just used them interchangeably and you have to look at the description to figure it out. Or the opposite, where they just have one SKU and they use it for everything. So the one shout out I would say, if you're a startup, 
create a product list. Oh my gosh. And create a price list. Yes. Please just put something, stake in the ground to give us something to work off of. Because at some point you're either going to want to go IPO or you want to get bought and your consultants are going to need it. That's such a good point, Susan, because regardless of what you do and how you do it and what you negotiate and what you put in your contracts, it makes the accounting team's life so much easier and things can happen so much quicker if you have clean data. So much of what we do as revenue accountants, whether it's in an SSP analysis or elsewhere, is cleaning up the data because you can't actually figure out what your SSP is so you can perform an allocation until the data is clean. And if you show up and there's clean data, the exercise is actually not that complicated. I mean, it's a process, but often the data cleanup and knowing what are the fields, are they reliable? Are they consistent? Are they clean? That's the biggest challenge. Data cleanup is by far the most time-consuming part of an SSP analysis. I don't know if you've ever been in this position, Susan, but I had a client whose population was so big that I couldn't open it on my computer. And I bought like a pretty hefty computer knowing that, you know, we need to handle pretty big Excel spreadsheets. I actually had to pull my husband's old desktop computer out of the garage and get it set up just to open these files and then split them into smaller files and then send them to myself so that I could work on the different populations in these smaller files. Oh yeah. I've had files where I had to walk away from my computer for half an hour just to let them, (laughs) let them load. And we both have had clients where their volume of data is just so high that they only look at either a quarter's worth of data and extrapolate off of that, or even as little as a month's worth of data. That client, that same client that broke my computer that I couldn't open the files, they had one particular product line where we just used one month of data. And even that one month was too big for my computer. And luckily their pricing practices well-defined enough and pretty clear and consistent that we're able to use that one month of data and to extrapolate over the whole year's worth of the population. And that's kind of where, you know, circling back to those qualitative factors, we were able to bring in the qualitative factors to say, this is not a new product. It's been sold throughout the period. The pricing practice, selling practice has been the same. The circumstances have been the same throughout the year. There's nothing that's changed. And so we were able to bring in those qualitative factors of how do we sell to support the idea of just using one month of data to represent a larger population was okay. And it was consistent. The one nice thing I see sometimes in companies is they bring the revenue team in as part of the pricing committee or the pricing review or new product introductions. That's a great point, Susan. That's such a good best practice to highlight. I think the reason that's important is because then you can get all those fields you need and get them consistently defined and applied so that when you go to do that SSP say you have what you need product development or product marketing or sales, they come up with those SKUs, they're going to produce the fields they need. But we want to be like, oh, wait, wait, wait. we want the SKU. And then we want the quantity included in that SKU. We want a unit price. We want a selling price. We want a, you know, actual SKU number, like a unique number. And then also what's the description? Is there a product family? Is this professional services? Is this training? Is this software? Is this SaaS? In 
our language, like how we define software versus SaaS. And so making sure those flags and those categories are defined up front anytime a new SKU list is added, that gives us the opportunity to make sure we have all the fields we need, that they're accurate, that they're being applied correctly. And then we have reliable data when we go to pull a report, you know, leading up to do our SSP analysis. Many companies I see, they actually have fields specifically for the revenue or finance teams to fill out that identify that. And they include that in the system so reports can just easily be pulled. Let's talk a little more about data cleanup. There are pieces of data that we need to include and pieces we need to exclude. One of the things I see people commonly doing is excluding $0 transactions. If you're giving something for free that would normally be sold, that data point needs to be included. If you have a large deal and you gave them free training, that training line needs to become a data point. Now, if it's really you know a free trial or something free based on the the sales process, those would be excluded. But if it is a considered a performance obligation, it needs to be in that analysis. I also see that because ultimately $0 transactions can really mess up your analysis if there's a bunch of them that don't actually represent the performance obligation that was sold for $0, but they do exist and they should be included if they were sold that way. I think it's kind of a often a quick and easy way to identify things like you said, was this a free trial? Was it a pilot program? Was it a promotional thing? Sometimes I'll see dummy SKUs for provisioning. There might be like an operational reason that they have these $0 line items that really don't represent a separate performance obligation in the contract. So there is a reason to exclude some $0 transactions. But I think the point you made is so important that you can't just filter on zero and delete all. You have to filter on some other factor. So usually when I am in a contract like that, I see a bunch of zeros. That's kind of a red flag for me. Like, okay, what's going on with all these zeros? I filter on the zeros, but then I start to look at the product SKU identifier or the description or whatever it is. And that will give me hints. What's really going on here? Or maybe there is a product that they consistently sell for zero. Like I have one client almost never charges for their implementation, which means that all these $0 transactions doesn't really give us a good, that's not a great way to estimate SSP. Maybe we need to use a different approach like cost plus margin or market adjusted. Don't just delete the zeros. Let's get a little more context. Let's build a story around these zeros before we just get rid of them all. And that's true. Like, you know, say you have training and you always give one free training class at $0. I mean, it may truly be a $0 item. If it is, then you have to look at, is it immaterial in the context of the contract? In which case, then you just say, okay, it's a $0 item. We're not even going to bother trying to value it. Or is it part of a program? So like if you have partners, partners tend to get free training and tend to get other stuff as part of their program. And that is separate from the actual sales cycle. So you're not negotiating it as part of your sale. It's something they're getting separate. And so those items you would also want to exclude. Because maybe training wants to include those from a tracking perspective of, hey, we provided this training. We want to get credit for the labor involved, but they're not actually making a sale. This is, hey, we're just being good partners. And so it's almost like a pseudo booking or a dummy booking to sort of record keep 
without actually being what we would consider a quote unquote committed contract from an accounting perspective. Well, also what I see to your point in record keeping is when you send out demo products, like especially if you have hardware, you're going to send demo products to your resellers. You may have allowed them to have hardware that they can use for training purposes only. I've seen clients that they create NFR, not for resale SKUs, and they'll send those to the resellers to allow them to have something on hand with which they can then sell. And so all of those, they're not part of a true sales cycle in a negotiated contract. And so you would exclude all of those. All this talk has me thinking, do you typically use information from Salesforce from NetSuite or another ERP? Like where are you typically seeing this report pulled from? I typically see it pulled from the ERP. If they have RevPro or some other application that does their revenue, then pulling the order information from there. Sometimes you have to leverage Salesforce to see the the background on the different transactions. But typically I don't see it pulled out of Salesforce. When you throw out the idea of RevPro or any other sort of revenue accounting system, that already tells me you're dealing with a relatively sophisticated client. When you have, you know, some sort of revenue automation in in place, then you're further along in the life cycle of your revenue accounting process. That was sort of what I was hoping you would say is that typically this is coming from some sort of accounting system, but you're still sometimes pulling in stuff from Salesforce, which as much as I love Salesforce, often the data in there can be kind of mucky. There's maybe not as many controls in place. And I think for earlier stage companies, you're even more reliant on Salesforce because maybe their ERP, you know, maybe they're still in QuickBooks. Maybe they're very early in NetSuite and they just don't have all the fields you need. And maybe they just have invoicing and that's it. And you only have the data that you see on the invoice and there's so much more context in Salesforce. So I'm constantly doing one of those things where you're trying to look up the transactions in Salesforce and match them to the transaction in NetSuite or your other, another ERP. And inevitably they don't use the exact same naming convention always. Do you, do you ever do that where you have to do like a mapping where it's like 80% of the customer names are exactly the same? But then 20% of the customer names, you have to manually match. That's something that's a pain when you come to combining contracts, trying to figure out, are these the same customer? Not even figuring out if they're the same because it's obviously the same, but you can't do a really quick, easy consolidation or formula. I was just walking a client through how to do this. And I said, hey, quick tip, because I've done this before and I... (laughs) And I've run into the same thing. The first time you're like, oh, it's just a couple that I have to manually override. And so you just kind of manually do it. But then the thing is you end up having to run the report again and again, and you have to do it so many times that I've learned that the best way to do this is to create a separate tab where you have a list of all the ERP customer names and a list of all the Salesforce customer names so that you have that mapping. And anytime you have to try and compare the two or rerun the report, instead of having to manually override it each time, you can just do a VLOOKUP. And if something comes up with an error, you can immediately see, this is the one I haven't matched before. Now I have to map a new one. I think a lot of companies actually have that as part of their close process because they have to report if they have any customers that are over 10% of their sales. So they have to do this mapping. And I've seen it where they do just what you say, have a starting point, and then they'll add in the new ones. 
And it's especially hard when you have resellers where you have end users and the end user names are often either typed in or just uploaded. And so there's no consistency. Even though it's a little bit of an extra step to make those customer name you know, maps, it's a good investment because you end up using them over and over and over again. This concludes our discussion on data gathering in preparation for the SSP analysis. To get notified about future episodes, follow us on LinkedIn. Please reach out to us with questions or topic suggestions by posting on LinkedIn or emailing us at revretgals at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. The examples discussed are based on specific company dynamics. Check in with your auditors before making changes to your current processes. Specializing in revenue recognition may result in employment for life. Please consult your friends and family before pursuing this career.